the crossover that every kid demanded. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and I'm going to be your host through what is planned to be 33 episodes that will come out on what seems like an irregular schedule, but as you'll actually see, is deliberately planned. You see, the idea behind this series is that 30 years ago, I began collecting comics for the first time. Now, I say the first time because my comic book collecting stint only wound up lasting a year, and it wouldn't be until 1990 when I started picking up both Batman and Detective Comics that I went all in with collecting comic books, a habit I still have. The books I'll be covering are those that, to the best of my memory, are the ones I bought live off the stands, so you won't get any of the back issues I bought or any of the comics I borrowed from friends or read at their houses. No, these are all comics that I purchased brand new, and I will be covering them 30 years to the day of their release. To help me with that, I have used the publication date as listed on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which has been an invaluable source to so many of us in the podcasting community over the years. In each episode, you'll get a summary and review of the comic or comics that I bought on that date, as well as... Well, tell any stories I might have about it, plus whatever else is on my mind as I reminisce about 1986 and 1987. Now, in the fall of 1986, I was still nine years old, and I was starting the fourth grade. At this point, I'd say that the two biggest things I had going for me were baseball and G.I. Joe. The Mets at this point had already clinched the National League East. They were about a week away from starting the playoffs against the Houston Astros. There were plenty of shows on television that I was watching on a regular basis after school, but when it came to stuff like toys, G.I. Joe was definitely at its height and would continue to be that way really up until about the winter of 87. I'm going into that much detail, mainly because at some point in early October of 86, I went to the comic store. It was probably with my parents, but it's more than likely that I was with my friends Tom and Evan, because the three of us lived a few blocks away from one another and were within walking and bike riding distance to Amazing Comics, which is RLCS in Sable, New York. Riding our bikes to the comic store was one of the few things we were allowed to do on our own back then. I think of the others, especially as we would get into the summer of 87, would be going to the pizza place, Carvel, the library, or the video store, all which weren't very far away. Plus, at that point in time, comics were not very expensive. They were 75 cents each, unless you were buying something that was on Baxter paper, but we really weren't. So you have 75 cents each, and that meant with $2 in your pocket, you could get two comic books and then go next door to Thornhill's Drugstore and buy a couple of Atomic Fireballs or some other candy they had out for about 5 or 10 cents. Yeah, I realize this makes me sound like I lived in Smallville or Riverdale or something, and well, in a way, Sable or at least my memories of it during that time of my life, it 
it very much was like that. Granted, there are significant parts of the town. It's clear the type of tract housing and development that's come to typify the suburbs. But there's also in small, still is this small town charm to my hometown. And you can't deny it when the comic book store, pizza place, and baseball field where you play Little League are one stop sign up and one street over from your house. So we go to the comic store, and on the shelf uh, that day is a comic book where Bumblebee, the Autobot who disguises himself as a Volkswagen bug, is getting blown apart by the United States military, specifically Hawk and the G.I. Joes. Above it, I see number one in a four-issue limited series, and right below it, that is G.I. Joe and the Transformers. And that's where I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back with more of G.I. Joe and the Transformers, number one. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back. Now, I'm pretty sure that my interest in the Transformers was on the wane by the end of 1986. I went to a site called Unicron.com where they have a huge database of what toys were released then. Um, similarly, I went to Yojo.com for the G.I. Joe toys. It looks like 85 was the big last year for me with Transformers. I didn't see the movie in the theater in 1986, as I recall. I did catch it on television. I do remember watching a number of the post-movie cartoon episodes around that time. So I think Channel 11 had moved them from after school to Sunday morning and they were burning them off or something. Uh, that may have been a year or two later, though. Anyway, I had a couple of the really big Transformers toys from back in 1985. I think the biggest ones were Jetfire and Shockwave. Uh, my friend had Blaster. I mean, I might have had that one, too. I had a few random ones here or there. I know for a fact that at some point I also had a Japanese import version of the helicopter Autobot named Whirl. I'd had it for a couple of years before the toy came out. Uh, so we're talking like 83, 84, because I had it in the first grade. And my toy was royal blue with a white head, and there were just all sorts of Japanese characters on the box. In fact, I remember writing a letter to my friend Chris and telling him about the toy and just reproducing a lot of the different Japanese characters in the letter because it seemed so cool to me. 
I may have been in the second grade when I did that, or might have been the first. But I, like I said, I had that import version of the toy for a couple of years, and I think my dad got it from somebody he knew. I'm honestly, I'm not sure how these things happened when I was a kid, especially when I was seven years old. Stuff kind of just showed up, and I had it, which makes me sound incredibly spoiled when you think about it. But really, it's you know. You don't. I don't think you think in in terms of what your parents go through to get you toys when you're when you're that young. Anyway, Transformers were not on my birthday or Christmas list in 1986. GI Joe was, but there was still enough overlapping interest for me to go to the store and pick up this comic book. The art of the cover is by Herb Trimpey and Vince Coletta, and they also supply the interior art. The story is by Michael Higgins, letters by Joseph Rosen, and colors by Yeltsin Yamatov. Bob Harris was the book's editor. I believe at that point, Jim Shooter was still the editor-in-chief of Marvel. For full disclosure, I'm reading this out of the trade paperback that came out in 1993 and collected all four issues. I've got this for a song on eBay. It, this has been reprinted elsewhere. I believe it's part of an IDW trade of classic G.I. Joe and classic Transformers comic books that you can pick up. The title of our issue is Blood on the Tracks, and the MacGuffin for our story is a huge nuclear-powered space shuttle called Power Station Alpha, which the G.I. Joe team has been assigned to protect by order of their superiors, who aren't very happy with them because back in issue number 50 of the series, they screwed up royally by invading the town of Springfield, which was controlled by Cobra, but the Joes were unable to find any hard evidence of Cobra's control. And for those of you who are trying to fit this into continuity, while this comes out around the same time as issue number 54 of G.I. Joe, it might take place right before it or before issue 53, which is where Cobra invades the pit. I say that because Cobra Commander appears in the first few pages of the issue, but he's not seen or heard from again, and Destro does nobody where to be found either. You'll find out why when I cover G.I. Joe number 55 in the next episode. As for the Transformers, this issue comes out around the same time as the Transformers number 23, which is one month prior to the death of Optimus Prime in 24. So Prime is in this story, but by the end of issue 2, we find out he's dead. And kudos to the writers for trying to work the actual continuity and issue-by-issue goings-on in the book into the miniseries. Um, They don't exactly fit it in that well. But they could have very well had just had this take place and give no regard to continuity, you know, um, and they gave it their best shot to fit it in. It's a very tumultuous time for both books. So anyway, back to the plot, back to the MacGuffin. This is Power Station Alpha. Hawk is the escort for Senator Barbara Larkin, who has been a prominent proponent of the project. They make their way through the protesters who are standing outside of the Fort Lewis in Seattle, all of whom don't want another Chernobyl on their hands if that thing malfunctions. Power Station Alpha is in good hands, though, because the Joes are there, although nobody seems to notice three of Zartan's dreadnoughts hanging out by the protesters. Meanwhile, on the Autobots' headquarters, the Ark, Optimus Prime charges Bumblebee with making his way to Fort Lewis to discover more about Power Station Alpha. He thinks to himself about how Megatron is a growing threat, and this is their more most desperate hour. At Fort Lewis, the Dreadnoughts break into the base and are quickly driven away and pursued by the Joes, eventually eluding them. They're rescued by Zarana, but not before trying to cut Bumblebee with a chainsaw, noticing that he literally stepped out of the way while in his car form. On Cobra Island, Cobra Commander is all ticked off at Zartan because those three buffoons have tipped Cobra's hand, 
in regarding their interest in Power Station Alpha, and in the Decepticons headquarters, Megatron sends Dirge and Bombshell to Fort Lewis. Dirge drops Bombshell off so that the Insecticon can do some recon and gather intelligence. Bombshell hits a kid named Anthony with what's called a Cerebro shell, and that seems to be some sort of mind control device or something. He commands the kid to walk under the treads of Power Station Alpha, and the kid is about to be crushed when Bumblebee, who has already alerted Optimus Prime to the Insecticon's presence, transforms and saves him. Naturally, this freaks the Joes out, and before they can give him any a chance to explain, they concentrate all their firepower on the Autobot, blasting him to bits. This has all given Bombshell the diversion he needs to get on board Power Station Alpha so that he can eventually take it over. While the Joes survey the damage, the aerial bots that Optimus Prime sent from the Ark arrive to form Superion, who has come for their fallen ally. You know, I never really had much of an opinion on Herd Trimpy. I could take him or leave him because I always found his work to be okay. Granted, I was only familiar with the work that he did on the G.I. Joe comic, and that means that his art was pretty straightforward, and he did a good job of bringing the action figures to the page. Here it's the same thing, although I'm going to have to lodge the same complaint that a lot of us in comics podcasting have with Vince Coletta and his inks. They just completely take away from the art. Everything looks really smoothed out. There's not much really to the backgrounds. Yes, there are some times when the panel or scene demands that something be shown in the background, but there's just a lot of green grass and blue sky. Plus, while Trimpy is really good at making G.I. Joe characters look like their action figures, his Transformers leave a little to be desired. Then again, this is something you'll probably hear me say more than once through my time with this podcast, there weren't a lot of times when the Transformers looked 100% perfect in the interior art of comic books. The covers always looked pretty cool when I was a kid, but I have to say that when I would read the Transformers comics, they always looked like something was missing. I'll get into more detail about that later on, like I said, but i also say it's pretty much on display here. Trippy does the best he can, but in the few times we see the Transformers, while you can certainly tell who they were, they're not incredibly detailed, but they also seem very stiff. As for the story, it's, it's better than the art. Michael Higgins prior to this has no writing credit. In fact, up until this point, his credits are as a letterer and a colorist, so this is essentially a, like a tryout series for him. While my nine-year-old self wouldn't really want to admit this back in 1986, this probably wasn't a huge priority or a very high-profile comic book compared to, say, Spider-Man or the X-Men. While I can probably say that kids would probably have jumped at the chance to see the first issue in the stands, G.I. Joe and the Transformers wasn't exactly a guaranteed mega-seller. In fact, while G.I. Joe got three Marvel Age covers during its run, the Transformers didn't get a single cover and might not have even gotten that much of a spotlight. Still, you've got two Hasbro properties and at least one of them is selling well, so what can we do with it, right? Well, the plot's straightforward enough not to be too contrived. After all, we have this nuclear-powered space shuttle which people are protesting because it's a military project that can also be a super weapon that has potential to be dangerous. Honestly, even a nine-year-old in 1986 had heard of Chernobyl by then and might have known something about nuclear power or nuclear weapons, so we have a situation where the danger is really obvious. Plus, it's something mechanical that gives the Decepticons an advantage over the Autobots. So Higgins works in a way to get the Transformers into the Joe's world, which is much more plausible than the opposite because the setting is Earth, and at this point in the story, the Transformers are still more or less undercover. Getting the Joes into the story, not too hard, because they're working security detail. And Higgins also seamlessly works in the politics that Larry Hama was working in with in the background of a Ricci Joe adventure between Hawk and the Pentagon and Washington. 
of course, it's all set up. And Higgins gives that to us exactly, you know, what as he's supposed to, as well as a great moment of action and tragedy with the death of Bumblebee. Bumblebee had one of been one of the more well-known Autobots, and one of the characters that was, well, he was he was kind of the Jimmy Olsen of the Transformers. He's important to plots, but he's the nice sidekick sort of character that I remember having an attachment of sorts to. And one of the major storylines just prior to his death was one that had been advertised on the cover of an issue of Transformers as Bumblebee's Last Stand. It appeared to be about his death, but more about his feeling useless as an Autobot and not contributing to the team. So in a sense, he's the sacrificial lamb for the purposes of this story. He'll get a new toy as well later on. Anyway, here, the cover, which is my favorite cover throughout the series, by the way, promises something that inside, well, it actually delivers on. And Trimpy's depiction of Bumblebee's death inside the issue is almost as good as how it's depicted on the cover. The aerial bot showing up at the end of Superion is a nice teaser for the next issue, although I have to admit that I'm not as familiar with Superion and the way Trimpy and Coletta draw the robot. It doesn't look like as intimidating as it should be. But let's be honest, I didn't expect much more beyond a fun team-up of my favorite toys, back then, and I don't really expect much else beyond that 30 years later. But what has been unexpected, which how much I have realized that this period in 1986 and 1987 is in a way the beginning of the end of my childhood. Now that statement sounds way more depressing than it actually is, but I think I just started to realize this recently because my son Brett just turned nine years old back in July. In fact, his birthday is one month after mine and it's two weeks after my wife's. So when we're dealing with stuff surrounding his birthday every year, the two of us can totally relate to the experience. A man on some level can relate more than I can to the summer birthday aspect of it. But because where I grew up in Long Island, school always let out on my birthday or right around my birthday. So friends weren't on vacation like they would be in July. My friends didn't take as many vacations as kids seem to take these days, or at least I didn't remember them being gone for long stretches of time. Then again, when you're nine years old, the whole idea of summer being finite really doesn't exist, or at least it doesn't hit until you get that letter in August telling you who your teacher is. In fact, I don't think it ever truly started to hit me until I was a teenager, and that's because some of the clubs I was in high school had this ramp-up that happened in August into early September. But in those elementary school years, you just kind of went with it, and that's what Brett does. The other thing that I've noticed is how this time in your life is a period where you're sort of trying stuff out on a constant basis, but don't always focus on the one thing, which explains why I would be in only into comics for a year and then head off in a completely different direction for a while. Plus, Brett's already in that part of being a kid where you transition out of toys into other stuff, specifically video games. That wouldn't happen to me until I turned 11 in 1988, when I got my first Nintendo. But then my Christmas and birthday list would be more video games and books, eventually more for to CDs and movies. Brett's got his movies, he's got his Wii U games, but I'm curious where he'll go after this, because I don't think Amanda and I have bought a CD in, in nearly a decade. I mean, I buy plenty of DVDs and Blu-rays, but who knows what formats will be the dominant ones five or ten years from now, right? I'm not sure if my parents were thinking about that back then. Fourth grade was kind of a screwy school year for me anyway, and I'm sure I'll get into that more as the series goes on. Fifth and sixth grade were also pretty screwy too, and I'm sure I'll hit on that toward the end of the series. But right now, my nine-year-old self is still venturing into my parents' finished basement, and I'm reading and rereading this book while I've got my own G.I. Joe and Transformers adventures set up. It'll be another before I get to the next issue, although I'll be staying with one of those properties with my next episode. 
And that's going to be G.I. Joe number 55. So join me next time as I cover that. Now, you can leave feedback for me on the Pop Culture Affidavit website, uh, which is popcultureaffidavit.com. I will post some show notes with some uh, scans and and other things. Uh, you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook page for Pop Culture Affidavit, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. I'll see you in a few weeks.